back together this morning, and as I said, we're back in our series called Living Hope, and we're studying the books of First and Second Peter. This morning, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me just start off with the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? And now, as Christians, it's easy to quickly throw out a pat answer, but before you kind of formulate your answer. Let me ask you a couple other questions that might help shape it. First, what are you looking forward to the most this week? How will you spend your free time? What types of things bring you the most joy and satisfaction in life? Does that change maybe your thoughts on what you're living for? Uh, a recent Pew survey uh, framed this a similar question a little different way. And they asked this. They said, what makes life meaningful for you? What makes life meaningful? And here's what America said, U.S. adults. 69% said family. 34% career. Finances and money was 23%. Oh, faith and spirituality, 20 Friends, 19. That was right up there with activities and hobbies, 19%. Health, 16% find that that makes life meaningful. Home and surroundings, 13%. Learning and education, 11%. Now, of that faith and spirituality, Christianity was mentioned by 5% of the respondents as making life meaningful. So what are we living for is the question most people are living for these things which give purpose and meaning to their life. And so, let me come back to my question for you. What are you living for? More specifically, are you living for God? And what would your answer to that be? Yes, no, sort of, maybe. And if a person is living for God, what does that look like? What would it look like to be living for God? How would you evaluate yourself as to whether or not you're truly living for God? Well, those are some really important questions, central questions in our life. And thankfully, our text this morning, I think we'll find some answers there. The message title is Living for God. And we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And I've broken it down into two simple parts. First of all, the premise in verses 1 through 6. And then secondly, the practice in verses 7 through 11. So what I want to do is just read through the first part, the first half, and then we'll work our way through that first. So beginning then in verse 1, it reads, and I'm in the, in the NIV 1984 translation. It reads, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So the first part is the precept. It's the underlying principle that we want to start with in this text. And, and once again, our passage starts with the word. It's actually used twice in this passage. And what Peter is doing is building a case, more or less. He's making a point, point upon point, very methodically. And so here he says, therefore, because he's already established a point and he's going to build upon that. So what was the point that he's building upon? Well, it has to do with Christ's own experience. And that's really important for us because he's the model and we're to be Christ followers. So he's building upon the experience of Jesus Christ. So to see that, look back at chapter 3 and in verse 17. And it says, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For, or because, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then skip down to verse 22. He, Jesus Christ, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's a point he's already made. And the point is that Jesus suffered the ultimate in unjust suffering. Think about it. One man had to die for everybody else. And it was a righteous man dying for unrighteous people. There's no greater injustice than that. But here's the thing. It resulted in the greatest triumph ever. God took the greatest injustice ever and turned it around into the greatest victory ever. That's his earlier point. And so with that point, he then says, therefore, therefore, arm yourselves with the same attitude. You and I, as Christ's followers are to have the same attitude as Christ. We're to accept unjust suffering, even death, if that's God's will. And we're to trust that God can turn our unjust suffering around into a great victory, just like he did with Christ. That's a very different message than you're going to hear in a feels-good church. People like to flock to feels good churches. It makes them feel good. You know, the, the, some churches preach what's called a prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and happiness. They won't, they won't preach a doctrine like this, but this is God's word and this is truth. Some, uh, some missionaries from our own church family went on to missionary training before being deployed out in the field. And they had to study a course, and the name of the course was The Theology of Martyrdom and Suffering. Suffering and Martyrdom. How does that grab you? The Theology of Martyrdom, Suffering and Martyrdom. In other words, you, you could, I would word it this way. The biblical study of the suffering and death of good, faithful people for the cause of Christ. 
That's what this is talking about. What a sobering class to have to take. Yet it was essential to their understanding of God and themselves and his purpose for their life. The reality is that those who are faithfully following Christ will face persecution. Jesus promised it. He said, they, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. But that's not a promise that the prosperity gang will claim. Not that I've heard, but it's the truth. And so verse 1 says to arm yourselves with this attitude. Arm yourselves, that's military language. That means take up weapons and prepare yourself for battle. Arm yourself. So what's the battle? Who are we going to fight? This might surprise you, actually. It's not referring to a battle against unbelievers. It's not even referring to a battle against those who are persecuting us. It's not. It's a battle against sin in our own lives. And we're going to see that in these verses that follow. Does that surprise you a little bit? They're the unjust ones. They're the ones sinning and doing the persecuting. And the focus is all on us. Why not on them? Why don't we arm ourselves and go after them? And start pointing out their sin and taking them down. Why don't we do that? Because that's not going to win anybody over. That's not the way we go about it. We're not to return evil for evil. We're to return evil with good, with blessing. We, we studied earlier in the book. That's to be our response. And so our righteous life is a testimony that silences their ignorant talk. And so if, if they don't see righteousness in our lives, all they'll see is hypocrisy. And that's not going to draw them to Christ. That's going to push them away from Christ. And so the attention is on us. And the battle is against sin in our own lives. So, verse 1 says that he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now this, I think some people get a little tripped up on this verse. Some suggest that it's talking about once we die, we can't sin anymore. We're done with sin. And, and it's true the perishable is raised imperishable. Our resurrected bodies will be unable to sin. Praise God. Well, as Dave said during the Lord's Supper, we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin forever. That's true, but I don't think that's what it's talking about here because verse 2 says, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. So it's not talking about after we die, but right now in the midst of our earthly life. There's a verse that, a couple verses actually, that can help sort this out. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, He, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That gives you a little hint of what they're talking about. We're to die to sin. Our old nature has to be put to death. An old word, mortify. I, I never really liked that word. It's kind of creepy, like mortician. But it kind of means put it to death, our old nature. Romans 6 talks about this. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, as we just sang. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So it's not talking about dying physically, but about dying to sin, putting our old self and our sinful desires to death. 
That's what we're to fight against. That's the battle. Look at verse 2 in our text. It says, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So you see in those verses two competing desires, two competing wills. Our evil, worldly, sinful desires and the will of God. Our old self and our new self, they're in battle with one another. Many are defeated in this battle because they only want victory if it comes easy. But it doesn't. The battle against sin, it doesn't come easy. That's why it's called a battle. Battles are hard. It's a battle. We need to fight hard if we want to be victorious. I, I always go back to this verse. This one really gets me right here. Hebrews 12, 4. In your struggles against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How hard am I really trying? How, how far do I go before I give in to sin? Probably not very far. I haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This says we can try a lot harder than we do. A danger would be thinking, eh, Christ died for my sins. He'll forgive me. I'll just do this and ask his forgiveness. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Bring on the grace, God. We can think that way, but it would be wrong. Paul addresses very thought to the Romans when he said, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What was the answer? By no means, no way, Jose, don't think like that. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In fact, if we think that way, it's evidence that our mind might not even be regenerated, our soul, to think like that. So no, we can't go on living in sin just so we can enjoy additional grace. Verse 3 says, for you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now, that's not a complete list of pagan sins. He just hit some of the high points, but there's, there's a lot there. We don't use the word debauchery much anymore. We don't say, boy, you're really debauched. <laughs> you just don't hear that. Or there's a word debauchee. I never even heard that word. I'm a debauchee. But... What it means, it, it refers to sensual and sexual sin in excess, usually even public. That's what debauchery is. And, and it can include sexual immorality, drunkenness, crude talk. It's just, in general, out-of-control behavior. That's debauchery. Maybe a better word for today would be partying. I'm behind on the slides. I'll catch up here. Partying. Party animals, we talk about. Our, our, our society kind of embraces that. Like it's fun. It's a good thing. It's celebrated in Hollywood. You're a party animal. No, that's debauchery. That's evil in God's sight. And we're not to participate in that. He says, you should be done with that. You spent enough time doing that. Boy, I got way behind in the slides, didn't I? <laughs> See what happens? Well, when you look at this list of pagan sins, there it is, caught up. When you look at this list of pagan sins, including debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, has anything really changed in the past 2,000 years? <laughs> no, not really. Just swap out 
Roman orgies with things like maybe spring break or Mardi Gras or bar hopping. It's the same thing. Somebody once said there are no new sins, there's just new ways of committing old sins. That's right. Lust is still around. And just now we have little devices and computer screens and clubs and there's no new sins, there's just old ways or new ways of committing old sins. So verse three, it also lists idolatry, which takes a form of materialism, selfish pride, all of those. And again, this isn't a complete exhaustive list. It's just, it's just an example of some of the sins of a pagan world. How many of you remember the show, the Bob Newhart show? Remember that? Bob Newhart was a comedian. He started in the 60s and 70s. His TV show ran in the 70s, and I remember it. And there was this one episode where Bob Newhart was playing a counselor, and a lady named Catherine came in to his office for counseling. And so he explained to her, he said, well, here's how it works. I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and after that, it's free. But it's very unlikely that you'll need any more than five minutes. We'll solve your problems in the first five minutes. And she goes, oh, that's, that's great. It's almost too good to be true. And he says, okay, so let, let's get started. What, what's your problem? And she says, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a wooden box. And he says, well, okay, has anybody ever tried to bury you alive in a wooden box? She said, no, but, it, but just thinking about it makes my life horrible. Like, I can't go through tunnels. I can't do this. I can't do that. And he says, well, okay. He says, I, I have two words for you. And I want you to listen very, very carefully. And I want you to take these words out of the office and take them home with you and apply them to your life. Are you ready? And she says, yeah, I'm ready. And he says, okay, here we go. Stop it. <laughs> and she looks at him like, she's shocked. He goes, stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it. And she's like stunned, she's taken back. And she says, well, what do you mean? And he said, I give two simple words to people and you wouldn't believe how many times they ask that very thing. It's not Yiddish, Catherine, stop it. And so she said, you mean that's all I need to do? He said, yes, stop it. And so he goes there, all this all set. Well, he, she hasn't used her whole five minutes yet. So she starts listing off some other problems. Well, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. I, I, I have destructive relationships with men. I'm afraid of driving. And each time, the, the, the answer is the same thing. Stop it. <laughs> stop it. You want to have fun? Just Google Bob Newhart. Stop it. So here's a little, here's a little picture from it. About 10 years ago, the elders circulated this video around amongst ourselves. And we said, wouldn't that be great if we could just say that to people in regard to sin? Stop it. <laughs> there. Done. Fixed. And we, and we leave it at that. Well, the fact is, this is what God is saying through Peter in this text. He's saying... You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Now stop it. How's that for a, a deep theological thought? 
Well, we should ask ourselves, in what ways am I living like the pagan world? What sins am I copying? Think about it for a minute. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's gossip or crude talk. Whatever your list is, God would have two words for you this morning. And they are? Stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. I want you to take that home with you and apply it to your life. Stop it. That's what this passage is saying. There, all done. Let's pray. <laughs> Isn't that simple? I, I, I never realized that preaching could be so simple. Yeah. But there's more. <laughs> As the ads often say, there's more. It says in verse 4, they think it's strange that when you stop it, when you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they, they heap abuse on you. Now, when an unbeliever is living a life of sin, it makes them feel more comfortable to have others around them that are also sharing in that sin. Romans 1 makes this point in verse 32. It says, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. See, they want others to join in. It helps kind of slake their guilty conscience. See, they're no better than me. We're all doing it. This is normal. And so they want others to join in. So when you don't do the things that they do, they're going to heap abuse on you. This is especially true for new believers who maybe encounter old friends. What? You, you come to God and now you think you're so much better than us. What? Who do you think? You're no better than us. I remember all the stuff you used to do. You used to be the chief partier, and and now you're so high and mighty, holier than thou. You're no better than anybody else. They heap abuse on you. Well, a new believer probably isn't any better than they are initially, but they're a lot better off. Amen? Amen. The penalty for their sin has been removed. Not because of anything they did, but because of what Christ did. And they've now been given a new heart and have this new desire to live for God. And so he begins changing them. And those old desires, some go away pretty quick. Some hang on a while, but they begin to change and grow. We call that sanctification. They're way better off and they begin growing. They no longer stand condemned though. And that's because of the work Christ did. He said that we are a new creation created in Christ to do good works, right? So they, they might heap abuse on you, but verse 5 says, but they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Listen, let me read you out of Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. I'll read verses 4 and 5. It says, Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore. But you don't have to give an account to them. They're they're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. Yeah, every person. Now, here's the thing. Every person, whether a believer or unbeliever, is going to have to give an account to Jesus Christ. But the Bible depicts two different Judgments, two different types of judgment in the end time. The first one is referred to as a great white throne judgment. That's in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. 
And it's there that every person whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will stand before Christ. And another book will be opened up. And it's more like an indictment. All of the things that they did in the flesh, in this life, will be read off. And then the sentence will be read guilty. And they'll be condemned to an eternity apart from God. It says they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's a great white throne judgment. Some disagree as to whether Christians will be there for that, but we will not be judged according to salvation or for salvation. We're already saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But there is another judgment where we'll give an account for the things that we've done in our life, and it's referred to as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. That's where we'll stand before the Lord, but not to judge us unto salvation or damnation, but we'll receive rewards for the things done in this life in the name of Christ. It, the, the imagery is that of an athlete. And at the end, you have a ceremony and they come forward to the Bema seat where the judges hand out rewards. They're often referred to as wreaths or crowns in scripture. And so believers are rewarded based on their faithfulness in this life. That's a very different kind of judgment. Some people like to say, all roads lead to God, meaning well, everybody's going to be saved in the end. Well, all roads do lead to God. And they all lead to judgment, but not salvation. God said that narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. Broad is the path of destruction. Many find that. So they do all lead to God. We all stand before God. And this is saying they're going to stand in judgment before the Lord. So if you step back and looked at your life, are you on the broad path, the way of the world around you? Or are you on the narrow path, the way of God that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ? It says in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So this is referring to believers who received the gospel and believed they were saved, but then they were put to death for their faith. They were martyred. Now in this country, we're pretty, it's almost hard to imagine the type of persecution that happens in other countries. We, we enjoy freedom and we enjoy a lot of liberty in this country and prosperity. It's almost, it really is foreign to us. But there's a lot of persecution happening around the world. Coming up November 7th, there will be an International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. It's sponsored by the Voice of the Martyrs. And we're gonna celebrate that here. We're gonna have a time where we can pray together for persecuted Christians around the world. And there'll be some more information coming out on that soon. So verse six says that these people were judged by men in the body. It was an unjust judgment. They were put to death because of their faith. But these martyrs have been judged by God in their spirit. And the verdict there is eternal life. So just summarizing this first section, God will take our unjust suffering and turn it around into a great victory. And he will judge the unrighteous. Therefore, not to live any longer for our evil, sinful, human desires, but we're to live for the will of God. We're to live for God. 
So what does that look like? That's a question I asked in the beginning. What does it look like to live for God? And are you living for God? Well, I think we're going to find some answers as we look at this second part. And that's a principle. The practice is in verses 7 through 11. So let's read through that together. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. So then in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So look how this section begins in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near. How many of you sense that? That the end of all things is getting pretty close. Yeah, some hands. Maybe you sense that more today than you did just a couple years ago. You know, maybe a few years ago, the apocalyptic language of the Bible just seemed kind of fanciful. I, can't, I just can't imagine something like that happening. And now maybe you go, I think global meltdown could really happen. And it could be very, very close. Now, I'm not a doomsdayer, but this says that the end of all things is near. Think about Noah as he was building the ark for 120 years. I'll bet the idea of a global flood in a, in, a, in a land that never saw rain until then, the idea of a global flood was probably hard to wrap his mind around. But he believed, and he was faithful, and he did what God called him to do. By the time that ark was finished, maybe he got to see the storm clouds gathering, getting dark. Maybe he heard the thunder as he's going into the ark. Now those outside the ark... They heaped abuse on him. Maybe even as the first raindrops started follow, falling. Yeah, some flood, Noah. Yeah. But before long, they're standing knee deep in a torrent of water. And they're pounding on the door of the ark. Let us in. Let us in. And they were swept away in judgment. The reason I bring that up is because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah... This is Matthew 24. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the return of Christ. They didn't see the end coming, but Noah did. And he was faithful. He was doing what God called him to do. He didn't let the trappings of the world distract him from his God-given purpose. He stayed on that ark for 120 years, building the ark. So what about us? What does God tell us we should be doing in these last times? And are we being faithful to do it? Or are the trappings of the world drawing us away, distracting us from our God-given purpose? Well, the next verses give us four things that we as believers should be doing. Verse 7, 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. That's number one priority. We need to be praying. As you see the end approaching, our number one response should not be more political activism, but more prayer. I'm not saying it's wrong to be politically active. I'm saying that political activism isn't in this list of priorities. Amen? Prayer is. Prayer's listed here as number one. We'll accomplish more through prayer. For pray, by praying for our nation, by praying for our enemies, than we will by any other means. The Bible says, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. Prayer is the first thing on the list for end time essentials. And we should start there. Now, remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus told three of the disciples, he said, the hour is at hand. The hour is near. Watch and pray. And then he went away for a little bit to pray by himself. And he comes back and what were they doing? Sleeping. They were sleeping. We're told to be watchful and pray. We're told to be doing the same thing that Jesus told his other disciples we need to be careful that we're not sleeping. In order to pray effectively, it says in our, in our verse that, in verse 7, that we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled. Uh, the Living Bible translates it calm and self-controlled. See, people who are clear-minded, calm, and self-controlled, they're not sleeping when they should be praying. But they're also not all worked up and filled with anxiety. They're calm and self-controlled. Now, when Peter finished with his little nap, the soldiers came and he got all worked up and he started lashing out at him. He took out his sword and he swung it and he lopped the ear off of one of the soldiers, remember? What did Jesus say? Try again, <laughs> aim a little better this time. No, he, obviously he was a fisherman, not a swordsman. He said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Many people are worked up over the events of the past years. They're filled with anxiety, a ball of nerves, unsettled, even lashing out at other people in their frustration. We need to be clear-minded, self-controlled, calm, so that we can pray. And when we do pray, it'll further calm our souls and give us insight, wisdom, and understanding of how to live in this day, in this time. I'm so encouraged by the number of people I see praying at nine o'clock before the service in our conference room. And the ladies who come out for 90 minutes of prayer on Thursday, is it 90 minutes? Two hours? It's a long two hours. They come out and they pray. But it's still only a small percent. The end of all things is near. What should we be doing? Praying. That's first. Are we doing that? And then secondly, loving. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because 
Love covers over a multitude of sins. Deep love. Some translations say fervent love. It literally means to stretch out. It refers to like an athlete. The end of the race is close and you're coming to the finish line. And so they stretch out to get across that line to finish well. This is saying stretch out your love. The end is near. If there's ever a time to be stretching out your love for others in the body, it's right now. So what does this fervent love look like in action? In a word, forgiveness. Forgiveness, it, it, it seeks and extends forgiveness so that it covers over a multitude of sins. Take a look at this quote from uh, pastor and theologian Wayne Grudem. I think this captures the point perfectly. Grudem says this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. What do you see more of in these end times in churches today? Christians overlooking offenses or abounding in conflict? To be honest, I see a lot of both, sadly. I see a lot of people loving and overlooking offenses, and I see a lot of people stirred up and lashing out, and I see conflict abounding. God says, this, the end of all things is near. We need to be praying, and we need to be loving above all else. And then a third thing, I'm going to call it welcoming. We need to be welcoming. Look at verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. We need to be welcoming each other. This is one another. This is a church. We need to be welcoming each other into our homes and sharing meals and sharing fellowship together. It says, this, this was true of, of the early church. It says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And in verse 46 of Acts 2, it says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Inviting others into your home and sharing a meal shows love towards them. When's the last time you've had a group of Christian brothers and sisters from Riverside in your home for fellowship, for a meal? Something else coming up is our annual harvest dinner. You heard about it in the announcements. We get groups of 8, 10, 12 together at host homes, and we share a meal together, and we fellowship, and we pray together. It's an important part of loving and growing together as a church body. That's going to be Sunday, September 17th, October 17th. Now, notice what verse 9 says. It says, to offer hospitality without grumbling. There, there's a qualifier there. What would there be to grumble about? This takes too much time. This costs money. It's expensive. It's inconvenient. I've got other things I want to do. I don't even like those people. <laughs> there's a lot we could grumble about. I, I heard about a family that listened to a really good message on hospitality and they, can, they felt convicted to do something about it. So they invited another family from the church to come over for dinner the next Friday evening. 
So they got there and the hostess wanted to show how their family, you know, kind of lives by Christian standards. And so they asked little five-year-old Johnny to pray before the meal. Well, little Johnny was shy and embarrassing. He said, well, I don't even know what to pray for, Mom. And there was this long, awkward pause, and the mother stopped and smiled and encouraged him. She said, it's okay, little Johnny. Just say what your father said at breakfast this morning. And so Johnny obediently prayed, oh, God, we have these awful people coming over this evening. <laughs> Without grumbling. Maybe you don't like. Some of the people in the church, invite them over, have some fellowship, love them, pray. That's what we're commanded to do in the end times. Did you know that hospitality is a requirement, a qualification for elders? It is. It says to be hospitable. You must be hospitable. That's Titus 1.8. So why such a big deal about hospitality? Because hospitality reflects the very heart of God. Listen to what Ephesians 2.19 says. It, it says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That's the ultimate act of hospitality. God invited you in to fellowship with himself. You sit at his table. You're a member of his household. And he wants you to represent that to other people in the body of Christ. We're to be welcoming so we're to be praying, loving, welcoming. And finally, look at verse 10. We're to be serving. Each one should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others faithfully and ministering God's grace in its various forms. We're to serve others and we're to do it with the gifts God has given us. The spiritual gifts that he gives to every believer at the moment they're saved, they're not like a Christmas gift. They're of no benefit to ourselves. They're only a benefit to the other people, and they're only a benefit if we use them, if we deploy them, or here it says administer them faithfully, because they have one purpose, the building up of the body of Christ, building up to spiritual maturity, building up numerically. So we're to use them. Now, isn't it interesting that we're called to live for God? That's the precept. But when it comes to what that looks like in practice, it's almost all directed toward other people. You see that? How do you live for God? You start by praying. Then you love others. You extend hospitality to others. You serve others. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for others, you did for me. How do you live for God? You love and serve others primarily. That's the principal way. And when Jesus said that, when he said, whatever you do for others, you do for me, he was speaking a parable about the end times and about the judgment. That's the context of those words. So in practice, we live for God primarily by loving and serving others. And then verse 11 finally has a warning that goes along with these gifts. It says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So if we speak using the spiritual gifts of spoken word, spiritual gifts such as the gift of teaching or evangelism or prophecy, declaring 
declaring truth of God's word. If we do that, we're not to use our own opinions and our own philosophies. We're to use what's shaped by the word of God. It's a caution there. And if we're serving with gifts such as helps and administration and mercy, we're not to do it in our own strength. We're to stay close enough to God, calling out to him, following him, drawing upon his strength to do it. That's what this is saying. And then it closes with the purpose statement. This is the goal in the second half of the verse. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose of living for God. To bring glory to him so that God might be praised. That's the whole purpose for which we were created. It's a purpose for which we were recreated. It's a purpose for which we should be living, to bring glory to God. So let me return to where we started with this question. Are you living for God? Are you living for God? I think one of the greatest threats to living for God is busyness. If you ask most people how their week was, they probably say, it was busy. I said it this, this morning, it was busy. There's nothing wrong with busyness necessarily. Jesus was busy. He worked late hours. He often went without sleep. Sometimes he was up early before the crack of dawn to pray. Sometimes he stayed up praying all night long. He was often very tired. But Jesus was busy doing the things that God called him to do. So we need to consider this. Is godliness the cause of your busyness? Or is it the casualty thereof? Think about that. In other words... Are we busy because we're earnestly doing the things God calls us to do? Or do we not have time for those things because we're so busy doing everything else? That's what we have to consider. Some Christians are busy living for God. And I see a lot of people doing that, even amongst our body here. I see people doing it. Their lives show it. But others aren't living for God. They're living with God but they're not living for God. Here's what I mean by that. They want God to come along as they go about doing all their stuff. God, come with me and bless me in this and be with me in this while I do my stuff. But they're not taking interest in the stuff that God wants them doing primarily. They're living with God, but they're not necessarily living for God. They have little time for these things that God calls them to be about. If we don't have time for praying, loving, welcoming, and serving, but we do have time to watch 20 hours of TV or movies or be involved in other types of recreation or, or the likes, entertainment, then we're not living for God. If we're pouring our lives into our careers and we're successful professionally and financially, but we don't have time for praying, loving, welcoming, serving, we're not living for God. We might be living with God, but we're not living for God. And I don't say that to put anyone on a guilt trip. I say that with love. I say that to help us understand what God's word says urgently because we are in the end times. The end is near. I say that so that you can understand what God says and apply it. And so that you can experience the blessing that comes from living a life for God. 
We all need to be reminded of this, me included. So what do we do about it? Probably don't have a lot of extra time to throw at it, I'm gonna guess. So we first need to stop. Stop it. <laughs> we need to stop. Obviously, we need to stop living any kind of pagan, sinful, you know, lifestyle. Debauchery, lust, materialism, and so on. But there might also be other things that we need to stop. They might not be sinful in and of themselves, but they just might be worthless. And when it's weighed on the scale of eternity, maybe we're doing too much of those things. They consume our time. They're not sinful, but they're worthless. We need to stop some of those things as well. But if all we do is stop, we're going to leave a void. And that evil and those evil and worthless things are going to come back with a vengeance and refill that void. The whole reason for stopping is so that we can start doing something better. We need to start living for God. We need, to, we need to center our lives around the purpose that he has for us. Praying, loving, welcoming, and serving. That's what God says we should urgently be doing. Those are the essentials for end times. That's what it means to be living for God. To the extent we're doing those things, we're living for God. There's other things too, but these are the top of the list. So what would God have you do this morning in response to his word? When you sit down quiet before him, what would he say? You need to stop doing this. It's either sinful or it's just a waste of time. Or what would he have you start doing? Think about that. That's what we need to consider this morning. That's... What we have to do is, as a church family in these end times, if we're really going to live for God, he says, this is what it looks like. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're made for you. You're what our lives are to be about. It's a reason for which you created us. It's a reason for which you redeemed us, God. And like Dave said, is it a life that was worth saving? Not initially, but now that we're saved, what do we do with it? And God, as we focus on the things we just heard, help us to soak, soak it into our hearts, God, and let it just soak into our minds. Show us the things that you want us to change. Give us wisdom to discern the things that we should stop doing and the things that we should start doing. Give us, give us strength and give us perseverance to follow through with it, God. Help us, help every one of us, Lord, to truly live for you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.